From the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's the Broding Night podcast. Each month, we feature a researcher supported by this program, which connects rising philanthropists with emerging scientific talent. Learn more at giving.broadinstitute.org slash Brodignite. Brodignite, seeding the next generation of biomedical visionaries. If you would look at a stool sample of a six-month-old, I can predict with pretty good chances whether he or she were born by vaginal delivery or by a C-section, which I think is, is pretty amazing. I'm Jenny Rude, your host for this episode. There's been a lot of buzz lately about the human microbiome. That's the collection of bacteria, fungi, and other microbes that live in and on our bodies. In fact, they make up over half our cells. And just as each of us has our own unique genome, we also have a unique microbial fingerprint. Today, we'll be chatting with Brody Knight awardee Maran Yasur, who's working to figure out the factors that influence how we collect and cultivate these microscopic fellow travelers at the earliest stages of our lives. Welcome to the podcast, Maran. Thank you, Jenny. It's great to be here. So you're a computational biologist by training. What got you interested in the microbiome? I did my PhD work at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, both in computer science and in biology, focusing mostly on yeast genetics. And I wanted to do something that's a little bit more translational for my postdoc. I wanted to be able to explain my studies to my grandparents and to my neighbors and let them see how awesome and super cool these things are and how we can really change the world. And so I was searching for a long time for a field where computational approaches are much needed. And, and when I first looked at these microbiome studies that showed how you know, obese mice can can become lean when you give them different bacteria and vice versa. I thought that was fascinating. And what in particular about the microbiome? I mean, you mentioned the link to obesity. Are there other diseases or other implications for health that were sort of intriguing for you? When I came to the Broad, I joined um, the labs of Eric Lander here at the Broad and Ramnik Xavier at the Broad and MGH. And, and Ramnik is a gastroenterologist. And so the first disease that comes to mind when people think about the microbiome is IBDs, inflammatory bowel disease, specifically Crohn's and colitis. And we started with a project looking at IBD patients over time and trying to understand whether we can identify microbial features that are changing in their gut prior to a flare, let's say, in, in, in their disease. And so I think that's one of the most studied diseases in the context of microbiome, and, and we're, we're starting to understand a lot more of the mechanism there of how the bacteria are actually in influencing the disease. IBD, um, as far as I'm aware, is frequently diagnosed in adolescence or early adulthood, right? Right. Then how did you start making the switch to looking at microbes in infants? So that's kind of a funny story. We decided that we needed to wait for more data for the IBD cohort. Meanwhile, I have kids at, at daycare, and I was just sitting around and looking, and you see how, you know, different kids in the same group, despite, you know, licking the same toys and, and eating the same snack, have very different gut communities, right? You see all these kids that have a lot of, of constipation at early age and, and kids that have very different kinds of phenotypes. And a lot of things are related to metabolism. And it, so it kind of got me started thinking about what is it at early life that these different kids, you know, despite being in the exact same environment, have very different gut communities. And so it just came across that at the same time we started a collaboration 
with Professor Mikhail Knip at the University of Helsinki, who had a very interesting infant cohort um, studying a different concept of, of antibiotics at early age. And so we started with that. And that led us to understand more and more what are the knowledge gaps in the field and what do we and don't we understand in terms of infancy and microbiome. Tell me more about that. What do we know? What don't we know so far? Surprisingly, I should say, we know not as much as we should have probably by this time. We definitely know that delivery mode matters. We know that if you would look at a stool sample of a six-month-old, I can predict with pretty good chances whether he or she were born by vaginal delivery or by a C-section, which I think is, is pretty amazing. And the reason we can do it is that because there's a whole group of bacteria called the bacteroides that are usually not present in kids born by C-section. And they would reappear somewhere between six months and 18 months of age, and we don't really know what's the trigger for their appearance. But more surprisingly, we don't really understand why is it that they do not appear in, in kids born by C-section. You would think it has something to do with, you know, whether the child went through the birth canal or not, but these specific bacteria that were lacking in kids born by C-section are not common inhabitants of, of the vaginal microbiome. Um, so there's, there's still a lot of mystery. So I know this is what exactly the question you're looking at in your Bird Ignite project. How do you study whether how a baby is delivered affects his or her microbes? I collaborated with um, an OBGYN from MGH, Dr. Caroline Mitchell. So we built a new cohort and we enrolled families as they came into MGH labor and delivery. And we have 190 families in this cohort. And we wanted to study the, specifically the effect of the different delivery modes on the microbiome, the gut microbiome of the child. And so we're looking at um, stool samples from, from the baby, just from diapers that are routinely being changed at the hospital and also two weeks after delivery from a sample that they send us from home. We're also sampling the mothers and the partners, and we're trying to understand what is the source of bacteria that the child has. So for example, if we find specific strains of bacteria in the child's gut, can we identify these exact same strains in the mother's um, gut or in the mother's birth canal and so on, and, and then to try and get how was transmission from the mother to the child. And specifically because we're interested in delivery mode, we have kids born um, in kind of three different delivery modes. Most of our, our children in the cohort were born by vaginal delivery. And then in terms of C-section, we have those that were born by elective C-section. So the, the mother knew in advance that they're gonna go through a C-section procedure. There was no labor uh, involved. But also interestingly, we have kids that were born by non-elective C-section. And the idea is that if indeed it is the passage through the birth canal or exposure to bacteria in the birth canal, if we have a child that was born by a non-elective C-section, they would have that exposure yet at the end be extracted by C-section. So that would be an interesting comparison. And what has this kind of complicated and, and very carefully designed study allowed you to figure out so far? So we're still at preliminary stages of analysis. For example, that difference that we find between kids born by vaginal and C-section that I told you before, we see it in our data as well, only that it's very predominantly found in the two-week sample, but not so much in the, one, in the first week sample. So that suggests that for some reason, the retention of this specific group of species is, is, is stronger in kids born vaginally. Another interesting thing that we find is that when we compare strains between the mothers and the child, specifically gut-related strains, we find that often 
the dominant strain that the child has is not always the dominant strain in the mother. A lot of them are being transferred to the child, but there are some that are more preferable to grow in the child's gut compared to others. It's interesting because we're trying to look at the functional differences between these strains, and we can see that some of the child's strains are, are optimized for the child nutrition and so on, and so it's getting very interesting. What other kinds of factors are influencing the bacteria that are growing in the babies and that they continue to maintain as they establish their, their gut microbiomes? The second strongest effect is clearly um, feeding, so either breastfeeding or formula feeding or a combination of the two. And what we've learned in the past few years from other studies um, is that the breast milk has certain types of sugars called human milk oligosaccharides, or HMOs. And basically, these sugars are, are very abundant in the breast milk, but are indigestible by the child at all. So it took a little while for, for researchers to understand why do we have so much of these sugars in the breast milk when the child can't really eat them, until it was found that basically the mother is feeding the child's gut bacteria which again, I think is, is a very interesting notion how you know, millions of years of evolution have shaped the mother's breast milk such that it is literally enriching the, the, the gut bacteria community of the child. And so we have probably anywhere between 100 and 200 types of these different sugars. And we are wondering what, you know, how the different sugar composition of the mother's milk would actually affect uh, the gut composition of the child. Got it. And do formulas have any of these sugars right now? No, not at all. As far as I understand, and I'm not an expert in formula in any way, the reason formula doesn't have any of these sugars is kind of twofold. One is that, again, the space is very large. And so we need, if we're going to manufacture these, we need to understand what are the exact sugars that we want to add. The other thing is that it's very expensive to make them. So if we can find you know, a minimal set that would best mimic breast milk, perhaps we can shift the gut microbiome of formula-fed uh, children to be more like those of breastfed children. Yeah, it'd be great to have science-based formula. I agree. <laughs> with sugars, with the right sugars. So has your research, as you've been doing these projects, made you think differently or reconsider your own microbes or your kids' microbes? Yes. <laughs> I guess it's a little bit inevitable, right? Um, I have two kids that are in, in you know, daycare and public school. I have one on the way, so it makes me think about how he is going to get their microbiome. Um, but you find that there are a lot of um, common practices, I guess, that are, are done specifically at schools that, that personally I have a little bit of trouble with. For example, um, my kid who is at public school, they use a sanitizer, like hand sanitizer, every day before they go and eat lunch. Um, and I find that a little disturbing because you know, the whole discussion that we had about uh, C-section versus vaginal, the whole point is that we want to increase our diversity, right? We definitely don't want to wipe out all these bacteria that we have on us. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of people have said this before me, playing in dirt is good. You want to increase all that diversity. You want to make sure, of course, that you're not going to go to the infectious disease department at MGH and, and you know, lick the floor. But you definitely <laughs> want to be exposed to everything that your normal environment provides. And then just wash your hands with, with soap and water before you're eating. I couldn't quite convince the school not to use sanitizer. So instead, he keeps saying that he's allergic to sanitizer, <laughs> and then he's going to wash his hands. So at least I've accomplished something there. So what's next for you, Moran, after you finish up this Brooding Night project and these other projects you're working on? 
Um, so the Brody Night was really helpful in that we managed to set up this amazing cohort, right? So we enrolled all these families and we've collected all the samples. I'm going to have another year and a bit here at the Broad and then I'm going to go back to Israel where I'm from and I'm going to start my own lab at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. That's terrific to hear. Well, yep. best of luck thank and you. thank you so much for stopping by for this fascinating podcast, Moran. Sure, it was fun. This has been the Broding Night Podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode when we'll learn how one scientist is studying social behavior genes in wolf dogs to shed light on autism in people. The Broding Night Podcast is produced by Bradford Krieger of Big Nice Studio. Special thanks to Scott Sassone from the Broad's Communications Department. And of course, a huge thank you to our fantastic community of Broding Night supporters. Learn more at giving.broadinstitute.org slash Brodignite.